Let's go to the Lord again with a brief word of prayer. Father, we pray that you would help us now to attend carefully to your word. Use us, Lord, for, for the purpose of hearing you speak. Transform my hearts. Give us ears to hear and hearts to obey. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, questions are important. Questions are important. Perhaps parents need to understand that more often because kids have tons of questions and sometimes we can dismiss them. Stop asking me all these questions. But questions are important. Now granted, some questions are more important than others, but questions in and of themselves are important. I mean, think of the questions you asked this week that determined your actions. Even this morning, the question, what's the temperature outside, influenced your clothing choices. Or a few days ago, how much snow did we get? Or did they plow the roads already? Determined whether or not you were going to leave the house and get in your car and go somewhere. And some questions are more weighty. Influencing not only today's choices, but life overall. Is it terminal? Or will you marry me? Just think of the questions that you ask or that you have that shape you, that shape your life, that shape your trajectory. All this to say that our actions, our life choices, even if subconsciously, are sort of answers to the questions that are floating around that we have or ask or assume. And this morning, we want to slow down a bit. And we want to consciously consider some of life's biggest questions. Uh, questions that people have wrestled with for centuries and the questions that have massive implications. Who am I? Why do I exist? What's the point of life? Or as the award-winning song from the recent Barbie movie pose, what was I made for? People have long sought to answer these weighty existential questions through scientific discovery or through philosophical pondering, through psychedelic experimentation, and through musical musings. But what if the answer to those weighty questions is right in front of us, written in a book, on the first page of that book? Would you read it? Would you accept it? Would you live by it? Friends, I contend that the answer to some of life's biggest questions are indeed right in front of us, written in a book on page one of our Bibles. And so if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to page one as we look at Genesis chapter one, verses 26 through 31 this morning. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. You're here and you need a Bible to read uh, in your time with us this morning. You can take the Bible under the chair in front of you or behind you or next to you. Use that as we go along. We want you to read God's Word as we go along. If you don't have a copy of God's Word of your own that you can easily read and understand, feel free to take that Bible home with you as our gift to you. We want you to have your own copy of God's Word. And we do want you to have that copy open. So you can examine what the preacher is saying 
and make sure it aligns with what the text is saying, right? The main preacher you should hear this morning is God himself, right? I hope to just be God's mouthpiece. And so you want to make sure that Bible is open so that what I'm saying is what the Bible is actually saying. Genesis chapter 1, and this morning we'll look at verses 26 through 31 together. We read, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Because I think it's the main idea of these six verses this morning, the main idea of our passage. God created humans uniquely in his image to reflect his glory and rule over his creation. God created humans uniquely in his image to reflect his glory and to rule over his creation. As we walk through this passage this morning, we'll draw our attention to to five activities that mark God's making of human beings. So five points. Number one, we see the divine decision. We said in verse 26, the divine decision. Number two, we see the divine action. We said in verse 27. Number three, we'll look at the divine mandate in verse 28. Fourth, we'll look at the divine provision in verses 29 and 30. And lastly, the divine evaluation. Five points, five activities that mark God's making of human beings. Number one, the divine decision. Number two, the divine action. Number three, the divine mandate. Number four, the divine provision. And number five, the divine evaluation. First, the divine decision. Now, why the emphasis on divine in each of these five things. I mean, divine just means of or from God. And even in this section that, that talks about the creation of mankind, we are meant to understand that man is not most important, God is. And just notice as you look at these verses, how God dominates this passage. In six verses, seven times God's name is mentioned. Verse 26, then God said, Verse 27, so God created in the image of God, he created them. Verse 28, and God blessed them, and God said to them. Verse 29, and God said, verse 31, and God saw. 
when you zoom out and expand it out to the entire creation account from Genesis chapter 1, 1 to where we'll end in day 7 next week in Genesis chapter 2, 3, all throughout that span from Genesis 1, 1 to Genesis 2, 3, we see God's name ring out 35 times. This book is about God. This book is about what God has done and is meant to draw our eyes and our hearts to him. In the previous verses that we looked at last week, we we saw God's creative work in the world over the span of six days. And this morning, we pick right up in the middle of the sixth day and a new creation of God. Look with me at, at verse 26. We read, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. At first glance, the beginning of verse 26 seems like the rest of all of God's creative works. In the previous days, we read, and God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And God said, let the waters be gathered together and on and on and on. Uh, But notice the differences we see in, in verse 26. God again speaks, but now with a sort of finality. With, with some conclusiveness. It's not, and God said, and God said, and God said. When we get to verse 26, it's, but then God said, as if he's capping off the entire account. And most strikingly, on previous days, and with other created works, whether it's the light or the sky or the seas or the sea creatures or the sun and the moon, when God speaks, the thing spoken comes into fruition. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let the waters be gathered together, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. But here, notice in verse 26, the speaking does not immediately bring into being the thing spoken, but rather is a speaking to decide to bring new beings into creation. Verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Who is God talking to here? The natural question, God said, let us make man in our image. Who is God talking to when he uses these plural pronouns? Some have chalked it up to a kind of uh, linguistic idiom, kind of like the royal we, right? There's just a plural here that's being used, but really it's an individual speaking. It's like sometimes when I'm preaching and I say, you know, earlier we talked about such and such. Well, we didn't talk about anything. I talked about something, right? right? I'm using we to kind of embody every, every, everyone. Some people say, well, that's all God is doing here, right? God is just kind of using the royal we. He, he's individually speaking, but he's using we in a kind of inclusive manner. The problem is that we don't find that kind of language in any other account in the creation account in Scripture, Others say, well, okay, we understand that God isn't talking just kind of metaphorically or linguistically. No, God is talking to actual people, and who he's talking to is angels in the royal court. Let us, he tells the angels, make man in our image. But that will not do because men are not created in the image of angels. Verse 27 goes on to explicitly say, in the image of God he created them, not in the image of God and angels. 
No, God is addressing himself here. What we see is what we saw back in verse 1, where we talked about the term God is Elohim, which is plural. Here then is another piece in the unfolding revelation of who God is in this plural form of let us make man in our image. It shows that there is plurality in God. Not plural gods, but plural persons in the Godhead. We see something here of the beginning traces of what's later revealed as the mystery of the Trinity. That there are three persons in one God. Or to put it another way, that, that God eternally exists in three persons, in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we see the, the three persons of the Godhead deliberating. The three persons of the Godhead discussing. The three persons of the one Godhead deciding to make mankind in the image of God. I found that absolutely staggering for a number of reasons. For one, it gives us a peek into the inner life of God. And it shows us that the persons of the Godhead talk, that they have fellowship, that they communicate and have perfect communion with one another. I think that's important to note because it means that God's decision to make man wasn't to fill some void or loneliness in the life of God. I mean, sometimes couples might act that way. You might go get a pet or start a new hobby once you're an empty nester to, to make up for the lack of activity and the lack of attention. But not so with God. There was a vibrant, full, communicative, cohesive life between the Father, Son, and Spirit. Let us make man is not a decision born out of something missing in God. Let us make man is rather out of the magnanimous fullness of love and joy and fellowship found in God that he desired to outwardly express. The second thing I find staggering in this passage is that it shows us that we are not accidents. We are not the results of some cosmic chemical experiment gone wrong. Neither are we afterthoughts. God just has some extra time and some extra energy and some extra creativity on day six. And so he figured, why not make man? Why not do something with this extra that I have? No, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 shows us that we are the result of intentional deliberation and attentive planning within the eternal Godhead. God decided to make you and me. God wanted to make you and me as his special creation and as the climax of everything else that he'd made. Saints, that's not just true with the creation of the first people. That's true even now. now. Sometimes people might have unplanned or unwanted pregnancies, but every human being is a result of God intentionally bringing that human being to life. God has a purpose to bring that life into being and to use that life for a purpose. He acknowledges that before even making the first man here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. There's intentionality. 
God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and this purpose. And let them have dominion over the fish and over the birds and over the livestock and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We see here the divine decision to make man. Number two, we see the divine action. Point number two, the divine action. Not only does God plan to make man in verse 26, unlike human beings, God can accomplish every single one of his plans. God executes his plans in verse 27. He acts on his plans. And so verse 26, God said, let us make man. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Note again a major difference between God's creation of man from his creation of other things. In previous acts, God made things according to their own distinct kinds or types. So if you look at verses 11 and 12, we read that he made the plants and the trees each according to its kind. In verse 21, we read that he made the sea creatures and the birds each according to their kinds. In verses 24 and 25, we read that he made the the beasts of the earth and the livestock each according to its kinds. But when he makes man, we don't read that they're made according to their own kind. They're made according to God's kind. Verse 27 poetically portrays the beauty and distinction of man's creation in three symmetric stanzas. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, we need to stop and ask the question since we've seen it now three times. What does it mean? to be made in God's image. In verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Image and likeness are used synonymously there. And then twice here in verse 27, God created man in his image. What does it mean? We we might conclude that it means simply that we are made to look like God. At the most basic level, we might think of even physical similarities. I mean, the Hebrew word for image often refers to a physical image. No, that cannot be the case here because God is spirits. God has no physical features. God is not a man like us. Yes, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, became a man, but that's not who he has been eternally. He added to himself a body. That's not essentially who he is. To be made in God's image most fundamentally means we've been made to represent God and reflect him. God makes us to know him personally, to be in a relationship with him, devoted to him, and then having a close relationship with the Lord, the creator of all the heavens and the earth, we are then to represent him and reflect what he's like to the world around us. In the ancient Near East, which just refers to the culture and the time period in which Israel lived. There was real recipients of this first letter, and they lived in a real culture like we do. In the ancient Near East, that surrounding culture and time period in which Israel lived, it was well known among all the inhabitants of all the lands that that the king of one particular land was thought to be the image of his God, because the king was thought to be and was called the actual son of God. The king was to represent his pagan God and to make his power and his presence known on earth. 
uh, he was to mediate his God's rule to all the subjects under him. And more than that, through all the temples and all the territories, the places like Assyria and Egypt and all the surrounding countries, there were hundreds, thousands of stone images and statues of the kings and the gods meant to show their God's sovereign rule over all the land. That's the backdrop that the original readers of Genesis, the people of Israel, would have had when they were first reading the book of Genesis. Well, here they read that in the midst of God's creation, in God's land, he puts up his image to represent his rule. But this image is no stone statue, but a living, breathing, thinking, rational human being created by God Almighty to represent his rule and to reflect his goodness. It's the basis for later commands that God would give Israel. Like the second commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. Not to make for themselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Why was Israel not to, like all the other nations, make a carved image of their God? Because God already made his image. God already made their likeness themselves. Humanity was the image of God, not some little wood or stone idol. The three stanzas of verse 27 serve as a kind of lyrical marveling at God's masterpiece of making man. Line one, God created man in his own image. Where did any of us come from? From God. Not evolved from animals. Not developed from lesser species. Not kind of dropped from the universe or from the environment by aliens from God, created by him, made in his image. Where did you come from? You came from God. Line two, in the image of God, he created him. It's almost like a doubling down on how awesome a reality that is. We are made in God's image to be like him, to display something of what he is like. Friends, there are no mere humans You've never met an ordinary human being. Every single human being is extraordinary because every single human being, we can say this is true. God created him in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Line three, male and female, he created them. God created humanity, but not just kind of a blob of humanity. God created a gendered humanity with two distinct and separate, but we'll learn in in Genesis chapter two, complementary genders. And both genders, both equally made in God's image. Among Israel's surrounding nations, it was only the king, as I said earlier, who was to represent God as his image. But as one commentator notes, here we see a a democratization of that idea. Right, a kind of spreading it out, democratizing it. God says here at the very beginning that not just a king, but every single man and woman bears God's image as his representative on earth. These two verses, verse 26 and verse 27, have massive implications for us. For one, 
They place us all under God. As our creator, God has rights over us. He can tell us how we are to live because he's designed us. He knows what we've made for, right? When you make something, you know how that thing is supposed to operate. And you know that if that thing does not operate the way you've made it, it's going to malfunction. None of us are free agents. None of us are autonomous. None of us are able to determine the paths and the purposes for our own lives. None of us can self-answer the question, what am I made for? Only God, our creator, can, and he does. He tells us, you are here on earth to represent me, to reflect me, to show the world what I am like. You are created in my image for that purpose. Friends, no wonder then. There's so much unhappiness, so much conflict, so much agony in our own lives when we use the lives God has given us for purposes other than what God has created us for. When you live for your own glory, when you live to make yourself happy, you know how it goes. There's a never-ending hole that never gets filled. It only grows deeper. You keep stuffing it with things, and the hole just keeps expanding. You were made to reflect God. And until you start living like what you were made for, living will never feel like living. It will feel like a constant dying. You are here on earth to represent God, created in his image for that purpose. And friends, this is a glorious purpose. I mean, what a high and noble calling it is to be created by God in his image because God is the king over all the world. That's kind of the, the, the ringing out declaration when, when God makes everything, rules everything, right? Announces everything into being. It's like God is the king of all creation. And amazingly, he's created you and me to extend his rule and to reflect his rule over all creation. We've been appointed by the high king of heaven to be his vice regents on earth. Most of us would jump at an opportunity when someone with some kind of nobility, someone with some importance, uh, marks us off for some noble task. We, we feel right good about ourselves. And, and yet we belittle the fact that God has made you in his image to do his work. There's no better promotion that you can get. There's no greater status that you can ever have. Who you are is amazing. But because God has made us in his image to be rulers under him, it means there's incredible dignity in every person. Each and every person was created by the king to represent him, which means we must not belittle or denigrate or despise or abuse any single image bearer. We are instead to treat every single image bearer with dignity and respect. That means rather bluntly that we are to treat every single man and woman with dignity and respect and value them. Since God created every single male and female in his own image. Friends, that means we, we should not use our words to tear down other image bearers. Whether that's calling women out of their names, which is so prevalent in our communities, right? That's all the music that's been pumped into us is doing. 
all the movies are doing, or whether they're slandering someone's name. How are you using your words as it relates to other people made in God's image? That also means we can't and shouldn't treat people as commodities to be sold or to be used. That's why things like chattel slavery in the United States was so egregious. That's why something like sex trafficking going on now in the United States and other places is so egregious. That's why pornography is so egregious. You're denigrating other image bearers, other men and women, using them instead of valuing them for who they are. My friends, even deeper to the core here, to truly value every image bearer means that we must acknowledge the reality of such a thing as male and female. Gender is God's idea, not man's. Gender distinctions are God's idea, not man's. And both genders we read here represent and reflect God. To deny gender then as fixed and to speak of something as a gender change or a gender reassignment as a good thing is to deny that there's good already, that there's value already, that there's worth already in a person as God made them, male or female. It's to deny Genesis 127 that every male and female is created in the image of God and endowed with incredible worth and dignity. You don't need to try to become a male to have more worth or to feel more worth. You don't have to try to become a female to have or feel more worth. You already are worthy because God made you as you are, a male or a female. Perhaps someone needs to hear that this morning. I don't ever assume when I come into a public gathering that everybody's on the same page. Maybe you are here this morning and you're struggling with something like gender dysphoria. There's a kind of wrestling inside of you, an unease and a dissatisfaction inside of you between who God made you to be and who you feel like you are or who you feel like you want to be. Well, let me simply encourage you and not to, to tear you down this morning. Let me encourage you. God did not get things wrong. God didn't make any mistakes. You don't have to abandon his design of you in order to feel right or to feel better about yourself. God created you as a male, as a female, in his image to reflect him. Do not run away from him and his purpose for you as you are. Deny temptations to turn away from him and turn to him instead. My friends, if you're struggling in this area, please don't struggle in silence. Come talk to me after the service. Talk to anyone around you. I'm happy to recommend people to whom you can trust. One way that you can fight rebelling against God's design is by letting other people in to lead you to the Lord's good design. Trust that the Lord loves you. He's designed you perfectly as you are. As our creator, he knows what's best for you and me. Trust his creation designs and trust in his care for his creation. We see here in verse 27, God's divine action to execute his plan to make man in his own image. So we read God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Third, we see in this passage a divine mandate God gives. 
a divine mandate. We've seen the, God, the divine decision. We've, we've seen the divine action. Now, number three, the divine mandate. Look with me at verse 28. We read, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Notice here how verse 27 is a basis for verse 28's blessing and mandate. Only a creation made male and female can be fruitful and multiply, can reproduce. Again, we see God's intentional design at play. Nothing is haphazard. Nothing is by chance. Uh, male and female are not just random social constructs. They are tied to biology, right. to physical features and to physical functions that fit together and that produce something. Offspring, children. God didn't intend for there to only be one male and one female made in his image, but an entire race of males and females, an entire humanity reflecting and representing him. And so the charge here is to be, to be fruitful, to multiply and fill the earth with image bearers as male and female, uh, to have sex, to have children who are also made in God's image, not just any male and any woman. Right, we'll see in chapter 2, husband and wife. Again, in the ancient Near East, the, the statutes of the god or king would fill the entire land. There'd be thousands of these little images showing that god or that king's domain over that entire region. Well, here God commands that he wants his image bearers to fill the entire domain of his created earth. As more and more people are born and more and more people spread out over all the earth, what are they spreading as they spread out? They're spreading the glory of God, the glory seen in their imaging him. It's why passages like Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14 speak of the earth being filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. All right, that's a kind of poetic way of saying as people spread out all over the world, God's glory is seen in his image bearers. And notice here the, the particular manner that God's glory would be displayed through his image bearers by displaying God's rule. God commands people not just to multiply and fill the earth, but to subdue it, to have dominion over it to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Everything that we just read about in the previous six days, the plants and the trees, the sea creatures and the birds and the living creatures, God gives man and woman authority over. He says, in essence, you rule over all this for me. It's kind of like what the, 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 the king in, in, in Egypt did with Joseph that we'll see later on in Genesis, right? He puts Joseph number two in charge and says, hey, I'm the supreme ruler, but you rule over all this for me. That's the same thing God does amazingly to every single male and female. You rule over all this for me. He makes us stewards over all that he creates. He is the ultimate king, but he puts us up under him as kings and queens over all the earth. It's interesting, you know, some, some of these, you know, false religions or false ideologies, right? They, they try to play to your self-worth by saying, you a king, you a queen, you know? Like, as if you need to 
disobey or move away from the Bible's teaching to get that status. That's what the Bible says about you. You don't need no false religion telling you that. Right? You don't need something kind of playing on your ethnocentric, you know, desires as to say, hey, if you're from this region, right, you, 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 you're, you're a king or you're a queen. Africa don't make you a king or a queen. The God of the universe makes you a king or a queen. Psalm chapter 8 that Pastor Warner read for us in the, the call to worship, which is a reflection on Genesis chapter 1. Psalm chapter 8, verses 5 through 6, David says to the Lord, you have made man a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. We are God's kingly representatives. Royalty intended to showcase what the great king God is like by our rule over what he's put over us. What does that mean? Well, it means that we are to show the benevolent and good care of God to God's creation. It means that we are to uphold God's standards of justice and holiness and to do good in God's creation. We are to subdue the earth, but not by a harsh mistreatment or exploitation of the earth, but by a gentle and intentional cultivation of it, bringing everything that God has given to us to good use. That means that the plants and the trees and the animals depended on God's care under man's leadership for thriving. Yes, God ultimately created and cared for it, but God has extended everything to man's care. Now, often we think of rule as being independent from God. We would think of a kind of self-rule. Maybe here this morning, you're thinking, nobody had to tell me that I'm a king because I already live like I'm the king of my own life. There's a God above us. Is a God ruling over us, but he is giving us the job of ruling under him. Oh, so, friends, let me ask, how are you doing with your job description? How are you doing with what God has entrusted to you? How are you using the authority that God has given you? Are you using it to display his glory? Are you using it to further his good purposes? What would and what do people think about God by your rule and care for God's creation? Whether that's the land that God has put around you, whether that's the people that God has put around you in your community, whether that's the people that God has put under you, whether that's children or employees or church members that he's entrusted to your care, what does your rule or authority over them tell them about God? Man's job, woman's job as image bearers is to bring the world under the dominion of God, to put God's stamp on everything and put everything under his rule. But there's a problem, isn't it? Because we don't see everything in creation under God's rule. We see much opposition to God. We see much opposition and pushing back of God's plans and God's purposes. Why? Well, because fundamentally, we as God's vice regents have rejected the king. We've sought to live life our own way. We've sinned against God, and all that sin has brought has demolished and wrought havoc in the world around us. So that the, 
Instead of the creation that is under our feet now, what we see is a creation that groans to be released from the subjection of sin and evil that our sin has brought. We as the image bearers have not reflected God's image and spread his glory. Instead, evil and opposition now fill the earth. We haven't subdued it for God's glory. We've become subject to the sin and evil that's around us, almost abdicating our rule as God's image bearers, as kings and queens. But thankfully, God remedies the situation by bringing another ruler, another image bearer into the world to perfectly reflect his glory. His eternal son comes into the world who we read in places like Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 is the image of the invisible God. Or in Hebrews chapter 2, the exact imprint of God's nature. He came into the world to imprint God's nature on the earth and rule over it as we should have done but failed to do. It's why when Jesus comes to earth and begins preaching, the first thing that he proclaims is that the kingdom of God is at hand. The king himself came to earth as a man to inaugurate God's kingdom on earth. And not just to subdue the earth, but to subdue the most wild, uninhabited creations on the earth to subdue you and me, to subdue sinful people. Jesus died for our sins. He rose from the grave so that all who trust in him might be saved and might be given a new heart and a new self that Colossians chapter 3.10 says is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Our sin has deeply marred that image. Jesus restores and renews it after himself. And he restores us to the charge that he's originally given us and gives us the ability to do, right? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with God's glory and subdue it. We do that most deeply once saved in a spiritual sense as we live lives renewed in Christ that display God's glory. And as we go preach the gospel and make disciples of Christ whose new lives also display God's glory throughout all the earth. In other words, the divine mandate that we see here in verse 28 is setting the stage for the great commission in Matthew 28. Go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. God's glory will go global as God's image bearers take the gospel throughout all the nations. And as God's spirit powerfully works through the preached word to convert sinners and subdue their hearts to King Jesus, bowing to his authority, and then going out in his authority to proclaim the message of the king and subdue other hearts to King Jesus. We still have a most royal rule and a great divine mandate to live for the king, ruling under the king and being fruitful and multiplying his reign throughout all his kingdom on earth. Fourth, we see, not only do we see the divine decision and the divine action and the divine mandate, fourth, we see the divine provision. We see there in verses 29 and 30 where God gives man food to eat. Verse 29, and God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth 
and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And then verse 30, he gives animals these same plants as food as well. We mentioned this last week, all the plants and all the fruit trees that God previously made on day three in verses 11 and 12, he ultimately made for day six, for the creation of his created people. God was preparing the land for them, a land that would be habitable for them to live on and fertile for them to live off of. Israel's reading of this passage will be a marked difference from the other creation accounts that were floating around them. In the Babylonian epic that I mentioned a few weeks ago called Enuma Elish, we read there of a creation account where the gods created humans to be their slaves and provide food for them. What weak gods that have needs. What weak gods that need people to provide for those needs. But what a powerful and gracious God of the Bible who needs nothing and makes humans not to provide for him, but to provide for them, to provide for us by his gracious hand. My sister Ava read for us earlier in Acts chapter 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's given us life and breath and everything, including food, to survive and to glorify him. We see his divine provision. And lastly, in this passage, number five, we see the divine evaluation, the divine evaluation. On every previous day of creation, God has given a kind of evaluation and an appraisal of, of what he's made. If you look through each account, on, on each day after each creation, we read repeatedly that God saw that it was good. Uh, but here, after the, the capstone of his creation, man is, is, is made. We read in verse 31, God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. It's kind of pulling back the curtains and giving God's perspective that he's inviting us to enjoy. When God surveyed all of his creation, when he looked at all of his works, he means to kind of tap us on the shoulder and say, behold, look, pay attention. What did God think of it? It was very good. Because it reflected God's very, very good nature and character. Again, we look out at the world today, and things don't look very good. But it was once upon a time, and it will once again one day be. God will remake the world, and it will once again be very good because it will be filled with people who are all very good, reflecting God's very good nature. Not because we have done very good, but because we have been made in the image of God's very good son, who even though we rebelled against God, came to save us and gave his very good life in our place that we might turn from our sins and trust in him. 
that we might live for him all of our days. And the Lord has made us uniquely in his image to reflect his glory forever and rule over all his creation. So friends, let's go out this week and live like what God created us for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your marvelous creation of us in your image to reflect you and to represent you over all the earth. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would help us to do that well. Oh, Lord, for those of us who don't know you this morning, Lord, start that work even now by saving us, changing and transforming our hearts. And for those of us who do, Lord, we pray that you will make us cognizant that in everything we do this week, we are meant to reflect you. Lord, whether that's staying home with children with runny noses or whether that's going and driving dump trucks, whether that's teaching on jobs, Lord, or whether that's applying for jobs, or whether that's being students, Lord, or being retired, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see our purpose, which is to represent you and your good rule in every facet of life and to reflect your goodness. Help us to see that and savor that and showcase that, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake.